One, two, three, four, five, six. Testing. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Maurice Selby, MD. That was my daughter Imani helping with the equipment check, and we bring you Health in Harlem, the podcast. And ladies and gentlemen, uh, tonight we are going to talk about more COVID facts. And unfortunately, as much as I would like to leave this topic, I can't. I mean, there's no way we can ignore or not talk about what's going on when we have in excess of 2.5 million cases here in the United States. And with that, 126,000 deaths and counting. And also, I would even add to that, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, that number is likely to be much higher as far as the deaths from COVID-19. And so we couldn't ignore this topic. And uh, with that said, we have to get some more factual, reliable information out there so that we can make the best decisions possible in terms of protecting ourselves, our families, our friends, and really just banding together as a society so that we can deal with this issue. Now, let's go back uh, to our first show, our first podcast, uh, the Health in Harlem podcast. We talked about five COVID facts a little while ago, and the good news is really those facts have not changed. There is still this virus that is out there, uh, despite the despite the fact that uh, it is revealed stark inequality in our society, there's a virus out there, this SARS-CoV virus that is killing people, this novel coronavirus. Um, there are the naysayers out there that don't believe there is an infectious entity out there wreaking havoc on our society, but the fact is that there is one. Uh, that is not up for a dispute. And this virus does not really discriminate in terms of infecting individuals. We have seen worse outcomes in people of African descent and Hispanics and other marginalized people in uh, this society and really throughout the world. Um, But in terms of individuals picking up this disease, potentially spreading it, um, and even having uh, bad outcomes, you know, this this doesn't discriminate. And unfortunately, we are all susceptible to this illness. There is still no cure. Fact number three, um, although we have gotten better in treating those with severe disease, and there are uh, things such as certain steroids like dexamethasone that have been shown to be potentially beneficial in some patients with severe disease, we really don't have the cure that we wish we had in terms of treating this disease. Fact number four is that a lot of non-factual and misinformation is still out there. I just got through an article in The Atlantic by Olga Kazan talking about the use of colloidal silver by some individuals that claimed, after claims have surfaced, about the substance being able to stop the virus. And I'm not outright saying that colloidal silver um, is absolutely useless, (laughs) but until there's a randomized placebo-controlled trial showing benefit in taking this, to rush and get this stuff and take it with the hope of treating the coronavirus, um, I cannot say that you would be doing your body any good. And to date, the consensus among mainstream, quote unquote, experts and scientists is that colloidal silver doesn't really do much of anything as far as therapeutic benefits in the body.
at least from what we know at this time, right? And one can certainly think back to uh, trying this with that thinking in mind. Maybe we just haven't realized it or studied it enough to see if this is a potential therapeutic option. However, the article talks about individuals trying uh, not only colloidal silver, um, but other remedies with the mentality that these things can't really do harm to them. And so they take it thinking, hey, maybe it'll help me. Um, however, we know that these things can really, in fact, harm uh, individuals. And a good example of this is hydroxychloroquine, which actually, believe it or not, does have some antiviral effects in the body. But when looking at the risks it poses regarding toxic and potentially poisonous effects on the heart, especially, we've learned that the risks of that medication outweigh the possible benefits in many uh, individuals. And uh, if we contrast that with things like drinking bleach, right, while it would probably kill the virus as it's circulating in your bloodstream, it has other toxic effects on your body um, and other uh, things that it'll kill off in your body that make it uh, dangerous. And so just because uh, something might work or there is some belief or you might have heard that something might work, you know, that does not uh, make it safe uh, to to try Right. And, and you can certainly be harmed by these various substances uh, when trying to self-medicate or self-remedy this issue at home. Um, and so just wanted to get that out there, that there is still misinformation, bad information out there that um, is harming individuals. And we really need to look for good, reliable information when it comes to uh, dealing with that disease, because if you don't lose your life or arm yourself in some way, then guess what? You you might be throwing some money down a drain and that at this particular time, especially, isn't going to do you any good as well. And getting to number five, fact number five, uh, one thing that we've pretty much established as a fact, ladies and gentlemen, or at least there's enough, there's a good amount of information out there showing that this is an intervention that works, um, especially at the societal level, social distancing works. When we consider all the other factors about this virus that we cannot control, right, um, and this is at the public level, when we talk about the virus's infectivity, its virulence, and potential for causing complications, including death, um, we talk about finding and developing therapeutics, looking for antiviral agents that can knock this thing out with one blow. When we talk about developing a vaccine, right, there's very little control that any of us has uh, over this, aside from the researchers looking uh, to uh, th discover those interventions. Uh, but one thing that we can collectively control is the spread. We can definitely control that, and we've proved it, right? I'm from New York. Um, we, unfortunately, were at the heart of that crisis um, initially here in this country, um, had a wave of patients that pretty much crashed every emergency department uh, in New York City and in some adjacent counties. And we, we had a major problem on our hand. And what we did as a city and state was we had to hunker down. These are the words of Anthony Fauci himself. Um, right at the outset of this outbreak in this country, he said that, hey, that was going to be the time where we might have to uh, hunker down, right, um, in an interview at the New England Journal of Medicine. And that's essentially what we did. And what we saw in New York was a drastic decline um, in cases. 
we still see continuing uh, dropping death rates uh, in New York City and New York State. And with that said, we can be reasonably assured that social distancing works. We can control the spread of this illness that are not value, um, basically sort of a measure of the, the infectivity uh, of this virus, we can control that. That value is not fixed. Um, and instead, it is a function of both characteristics of the virus and human behavior. And so by changing our behavior, we can lower that R net value, right? Uh, the fact is that we have a lot more control over the course of this crisis than we think and we should really think of ways to take advantage of that. And with that said, we're going to bring you some more facts to come. Facts tonight, ladies and gentlemen. Reliable information so that we can do our best in fighting this illness and making sure that we come out of this in much better shape. Welcome back to Health in Harlem. Welcome back to Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Maurice Selby, and my co-host tonight is, what's your name? Imani Selby. And we are talking about more COVID facts. Now, before we move on, I just want to flash back to the outset of this outbreak. I saw the reports rather early about these new weird pneumonias being diagnosed in China in early January and then heard the reports of this being tied to a new coronavirus. At that time, there were only six coronaviruses known to infect humans, and pretty much the worst of them was SARS-CoV, which caused the original severe acute respiratory syndrome outbreak in 2002-2003. Also, there was MERS, Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. Now, I had never seen a case of SARS or MERS, but I knew that those patients looked like death when they presented to the hospital. And with that said, the mortality rates were pretty high with those disease entities. Other than that, the other coronaviruses were largely known to cause mild illness in humans. Basically simple upper respiratory infections, and we mainly treated them with supportive therapy. And looking at the early literature coming out of China, I was certainly concerned about the virus, but not terribly worried because the mortality rates uh, seemed to be pretty low, especially in comparison to SARS and MERS. Like our president and some officials around him, and even local political and health officials, this illness was looked at as something to keep track of, right, and monitor the situation, but not to raise alarms or fuss too much about it. I can even say that I had the impression that this was going to be an influenza-like illness at the individual and population or, or public level. So my recommendations on this program, on Health in Harlem, um, pretty much the last show that we did right before the lockdown, um, I echoed the recommendations of our president and Mayor Bill de Blasio, Governor Cuomo, which was to essentially live your lives and not worry too much 
uh, about the virus and really just to watch the situation and see what developed. Now, my colleague on that show, and we actually had with us that night, Dr. Rhonda Truesdale, and we were talking about diabetes, um, but we decided that we would give sort of an update on the coronavirus because it had hit New York just uh, that week. And my co-host and colleague, Benjamin Suferi, who's a medical student and intern on our program, he asked me, would you still ride a packed subway car? And I remember looking at him, I paused for a couple of seconds and I said, yes, I would. I even went to the length of saying, if I had tickets to a Brooklyn Nets game, I would go. And I remembered in my head the Blasio telling New Yorkers to live their lives, right? Now, in retrospect, I am really, to a certain extent, ashamed of myself at these recommendations because I made these recommendations in ignorance based on my experience, my face-to-face, and, and, and literally um, you know, looking at the worst night I had in the face of this illness, in treating coronavirus, I intubated six people. No, Imani, I did not intubate 28 or 10 people. After having that experience, after treating this and dealing with this virus, um, both as a medical practitioner, um, but also just uh, living in New York during this time, I have to read NIG on those recommendations. The recommendations especially had to change once we realized the scale of the outbreak. Now, I would, I would venture to say most people can probably diagnose an active Ebola patient from across the room. I'm talking about non-doctors, right? Same thing for avian flu or SARS-CoV-1, MERS, etc. Those patients, because they look so terrible, so toxic, they are so ill, we can more easily identify and quarantine those folks really quickly and easily uh, because they are so incapacitated, so sick, they can't do much else. And so their risks of spreading this virus, their risks of going undetected um, are much less than this illness uh, that we're dealing with COVID-19. We now know that this is an infection that in some individuals can spread very easily. In fact, there are many people that are asymptomatic meaning they have no symptoms and they can still spread the illness. With the original SARS virus and MERS, it's the people, right, that are having the coughs and that are deathly ill that were more likely to spread the illness. This, in part, was because the virus had more affinity for binding sites in the lower portions of the respiratory tract, so deeper down in the lungs. That was the case with the original SARS virus and MERS, In contrast with COVID-19, the virus hangs out higher up in the lungs. Thus, uh, simple acts like talking loudly or even just singing. Some research uh, shows that even even breathing in individuals right during these uh, what's called super spreader uh, events can lead to spewing of viral particles from an infected person. What's worse is that this virus might be transiently airborne, uh, meaning these aerosols that are coming from individuals' mouths as they're speaking, singing, um, in the worst case scenario, coughing, right? These particles, these viral 
um, particles can hang in the air and remain infectious for uh, periods of times. And I hate the fact that I was wrong um, at the outset, but I own that fact and take accountability for my mistake. And I want you to know that Health in Harlem is still committed to bringing you the most reliable information and recommendations based on science. Right. And with that said, our recommendations on this show have to change um, in light of the new science that has emerged. We now know more about this illness and the data shows that social distancing is an intervention that can help stop the spread of this virus. And that going right, going to basketball games and being in relatively close quarters with hundreds and thousands of cheering fans will do nothing but increase the spread of this illness. Right, Imani? Correct, Daddy. And now moving on to more facts, and we see that cases are rising in the United States. Um, when we see what is being debated, right, uh, whether this is because of more testing being done or is this the result of the virus actually spreading more throughout the population? I mean, when we look at the experts in the field, right, the top expert in the country, Dr. Anthony, Fau Anthony Fauci, he says the increases seen throughout the country cannot be solely attributed to increased testing alone. Now, it is a fact that increased testing does allow us to diagnose and detect those people we might not have known to be infected with the coronavirus, because as we said earlier and on previous shows, there are many individuals that can have the coronavirus and have little to no symptoms. However, what is more alarming is the fact that hospitalizations are rising as well. And these people are being admitted for treatment of complications related to COVID-19. Now, I would give you statistics and numbers and about the many thousands of patients being admitted in each state and just across the country. But I think what might be in order is to just look at the very recent past when New York was admitting 18,000 people across the state to hospitals each day when there are only 23,000 beds across the state. Many of these patients required ICU level care, right? They had to be in the intensive care unit. And with that said, you can see how the situation got funky real quick. Hospitals across the state were scrambling to add beds. You had the USS Comfort, a U.S. Navy-operated hospital ship arriving in New York Harbor to boost capacity in New York City, in addition to the Jacob Javits Center being converted into a makeshift hospital to accommodate the overflow of patients. At Kings County, we were rigging various parts of the hospital to add an additional 292 beds, many of them ICU beds, as there was an influx of severely ill patients being transferred from other hospitals, hospitals that essentially could not accommodate uh, that influx of patients. This happened. It happened in a city where you might be hard-pressed to find a part of the city in which there is not a hospital within two miles. In central Brooklyn alone, we have Kings County, Sydney Downstate, Kingsbrook Medical Center, Brookdale Hospital, Maimonides Medical Center, Interfaith. I mean, SUNY Downstate and Kings County are essentially right across the street from one another. And yet we were overwhelmed. And to put it bluntly, I am worried what will happen in other parts of the country where the nearest hospital or medical facility can be hundreds of miles away. <sighs> this is the crisis we are facing, ladies and gentlemen.
where our medical system will be overwhelmed with patients and that 126,000 deaths we experienced in this country up to this point will definitely balloon to a number that I don't think anyone can really see exactly uh, what that final number will be. But there is something that we can do, and we can do it collectively as a society, and that is to practice social distancing. That is to wear masks. That is to, at the individual level, really just focus a little bit more on our hand hygiene. It's those things that can allow us to control this virus, right? And, and begin to hopefully at some point get back to our normal state of being in this country. But we can't do it alone, and we need everybody to band together so that we can accomplish this. And now, we are going to take the break. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. It is break time. You are listening to Help in Harlem, the podcast, and we will be back very shortly. Stay with us. Welcome back to Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Maurice Selby. And we left off just talking about the fact that social distancing works. I think all of the evidence that we've seen thus far, looking at the decline of cases in places like New York and other places throughout the world, Italy, even mainland China, where this pandemic started, there is significant evidence that social distancing is effective in dealing with this crisis. What we also have to acknowledge is the fact that social distancing sucks. No restaurants, no large gatherings or parties, no live sporting events. At least at this time, for all we know, there will likely be no more standing area at Yankee Stadium. We are just limited from living our quote-unquote best lives. On top of that is the economic burden, including the loss of jobs and income. Just like any intervention in medicine and public health, there are side effects. And we all see that the side effects of social distancing are very real and difficult to endure. I think our public health professionals are very aware of this. And I think, in part, that is why social distancing was not implemented earlier in the start of the epidemic, when we weighed the risks and potential benefits of this, without certain evidence, uh, it was seen as something that could be significantly detrimental to society. And we see those effects from having shut down throughout the country. Wearing masks sucks too. Take it from someone that wears them every day for a living. They cause rashes. They can be unbearably hot. While there are more stylish options available these days, many of them are not very aesthetically appealing. They can make communication difficult. This is another thing that is just not fun. And these are the facts of the current prescription being offered to the American public and the world. And there are definite downsides to this. 
one thing that we've seen come up time and time again recently is the infringement on constitutional rights. People being mandated at the local, state, and federal level to do things like socially distance, to lock down in certain areas of the country. Uh, Also, the right not to wear masks. We would even have the right or choice not to wear masks, even if there were laws stating that we must wear them. Regarding our elected leaders, I do respect that they are not cavalier when considering the seemingly draconian or harsh measures like mandating masks. This can certainly be seen as infringing upon Americans' rights. However, when it comes to the public health and safeguarding the people of our country from potential harm and ensuring that we can all enjoy our lives and have liberty and pursue happiness, I think mandating masks might be the right call at this time. Perhaps not permanently, but with increasing cases and hospitalizations, there should be measures in place to stop the spread of this illness. This is what we saw in New York, and it seems to have been among the most effective measures taken during that initial first spike in cases. Mandatory vaccination, although vilified by some, is the most effective public health measure that made many previously common infectious diseases so rare. And that is why those were mandated public health interventions. Because of mandated vaccination programs, outbreaks of polio, measles, meningococcal meningitis, these things are extraordinarily uncommon. It was because of these mandated vaccination programs that we were able to go out with our children and not have to worry about polio, not have to worry about meningitis when attending college, when serving in the military. These were things that were mitigated thanks to the societal nationwide programs to address the illness. And whether it is with a grassroots campaign um, to deal with coronavirus and limit the spread of this infection, whether it's going to come from the top down with our elected officials leading the way, we have to intervene as a whole, as a society, in order to get back to where we were. According to Paul Romer, a professor of economics at NYU and Nobel laureate, he acknowledged the economic fallout from the nationwide lockdowns earlier during a time when one in four Americans was under orders to stay at home. He also warned that things are not likely to improve very soon, despite the fact that most of the country has opened back up. In fact, He alluded to more severe and permanent damage if we continue in this vein without a plan that continues to limit the spread of the virus while simultaneously instilling confidence in workers and consumers, the main drivers of any healthy economy. In an op-ed article that appeared in the New York Times, Romer and Alan M. Garber, a physician and an economist and also the provost of Harvard University, advocated for a two-pronged approach to limiting the spread of the virus and getting Americans back to a sense of normalcy and safety. 
They advocated targeting, targeted testing and social distancing measures that focused on areas of increased virus activity and infection rates. They also recommended an increase in the production and use of personal protective equipment among not just medical providers, but with people in the general public. They also talked about the use of antibody tests um, and those being able to assess which individuals were safe to go back to work and shop and engage in usual activities in their environment with a reasonable expectation that they are safe. And while the article mainly discusses the use of PPE and masks to protect the individual wearer of the mask, I am pretty sure Drs. Romer and Garber would recommend wearing masks to reduce the spread of the virus, as would as this would almost definitely achieve the goal of limiting the spread of the virus and slow things down until we can catch up with increased testing capacity and effective contact tracing, tracing measures. I remember saying on a previous show that waiting for a cure, an antiviral or a vaccine intervention, and really just of note, the record time for a creation of a safe and effective vaccine was the mumps vac- vaccine, which was mumps vaccine, which was licensed by Merck in 1967, four years after the initial throat samples were isolated from a child in 1963, right? So it took four years um, to get an effective vaccine for the mumps. And that's the fastest that we've ever developed an effective and safe vaccine. And when we talk about antivirals, right, unfortunately, antiviral medications don't really have the best track record when it comes to treating viral infections with the effectiveness that we would equate with a cure. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but we we can't wait for these interventions. These are interventions that would, you know, be most likely to get us back to normal. However, waiting for them and not acting to limit the spread of the virus would only result in more unnecessary loss of life and continued societal apprehension and opening back up the economy. Now, with all of that said, the choice is ours. We're going to take our last break, ladies and gentlemen, let you digest all of that information, and we will return in just a moment. You're listening to Health in Harlem, the podcast. We'll be right back after this break.
you know, it's very it's it's very unusual for me as a ER physician, you know, um, who's been highly trained to treat patients at their sickest, the most critical states, but to think, you know, patient after patient after patient that regardless of what we're doing, these patients have a very, very high chance of dying. And not only dying, but dying alone, afraid, right, with no access to their families, um, in a room by themselves, in a sterile environment. It was definitely very disheartening at the time. Um, it's not a time that I definitely want to think about. Treating patients during the COVID-19 crisis was like watching a boulder rolling down a hill that you couldn't stop. Patients, family members, loved ones, the community at large, all of which unable to get out of the way of the boulder. Us physicians, especially physicians of color, only having pressurized oxygen, one-to-one care, and whatever wit and creativity we could come up with at the moment to stop this boulder from rolling down the hill. But the truth is, and the truth that we all know is that in order to support our black and indigenous people of color, our people on the fringes of mainstream society, that COVID is just an example that we need to build a new world that further and better supports the physiology of, of our people. My own experience working as a physician during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic in New York City, I would describe it as difficult, challenging, tough, for a variety of reasons. One of the main reasons was for the sheer volume of patients and how sick they were and for all the lives that we lost. It was scary not having PPE. Um, And at some point in time, the hospital ran out of oxygen, even though no one wants to admit it. So patients um, that had shortness of breath couldn't even be oxygenated, which was a problem that I never thought I would ever have to encounter. Um, Scary going into work every day, but knowing that you have to take care of these patients and what we're here for um, just propelled us to get up every day and do what we do. Um, I'm grateful that the first wave is over right now and hoping that we're better prepared for the next one. scary, frightening, nothing I ever would want to encounter again. Um, Fighting COVID has been um, something I wasn't able to study about and something that no one before us knew how to deal with. Um, So it was something else, not necessarily having enough PPE, not having oxygen for patients, not having adequate supplies, um, and those that look up to you are equally as scared and there's very little you could tell them to comfort them them nor families nor patients um so i I pray that this is over hey everyone this is dr terrell clone from new york just advising you all to listen to the wise words of dr selby when he talks to you about the covid infection we worked through it together in new york a couple months ago 
and we lived through what seemed to be a horror flick that replayed itself over and over for two weeks. We lost a lot of patients. We lost some colleagues. We still don't have a cure for it. So guys, the only way to prevent yourself from getting the infection is to practice social distancing and wear those masks. I want to thank my colleagues, Dr. Amadou Endow, Dr. Jordan Dow, Dr. Latif Salam, one of my colleagues who wished to remain anonymous, and Dr. Joseph Chirao. These are the folks uh, I worked with. They're in the COVID-19 crisis at its height in New York. And their stories are real. Their stories, you know, when, when we look at these facts that we've laid out on this program, the one that uh, when people dispute it, the one that gets me the most annoyed is the existence of this illness itself. The SARS-CoV-2 virus and the disease that it causes, COVID-19, there are those out there that dispute this fact that this disease is out there and that it is killing individuals. And I put the testimony of my colleagues in this episode in order to illustrate the reality at hand. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely a proponent of not believing everything that we see on television or here on the radio. Definitely one to, you know, sort of raise my eyebrows and second guess anything I see or hear about in social media. And so the skepticism, I understand where that comes from. But um, when we see something like this that is killing hundreds of thousands of people, killed 17,000 people in New York City, it's difficult right now to walk in New York City to meet someone that has not been affected by COVID-19. I don't think you can talk to or, or go about not meeting somebody that hasn't lost a loved one or a close friend or knows of someone that's close to them that lost someone. This is a reality in New York. I think one of the reasons why there is some skepticism is that, uh, you know, at that time there was a good chunk of the population here in the United States that really didn't come into close contact with this illness. They didn't see people dying of COVID. Um, you know, when I, I think about the crisis that we're in now and compare this to other crises in the history of this country, when we talk about Pearl Harbor and go back to the footage of battleships that had been destroyed in Hawaii, when we talk about World War II, when we talk about what happened in Vietnam and seeing the choppers landing and the carting off of our soldiers that had been injured or killed during that conflict. When we look at 9-11, you know, unfortunately here with this crisis at this time, we don't have those graphic images of people throwing themselves from the hundredth floor of the World Trade Center. I'm sorry to bring that image to mind, but, you know, 
the naysayers out there. This is something that's real. And to say that it's not, I mean, not only is it foolhardy, but I think um, it's also pretty offensive, to be frank. Uh, Not only for the individuals that have been impacted by this disease, either directly having had COVID-19, had severe illness and survived, but definitely the loved ones of those that were lost. And especially as a provider that treated patients with this, that that succumbed to this illness, haven't been impacted myself. I had it (laughs) through it. Um, But this is this is real stuff. And to say otherwise is is just unbelievable right now. And so with that said, um, hopefully this was uh, maybe a little bit more (laughs) evidence that this is a real entity that we're dealing with and a real problem in our country right now that we have to really uh, buckle down and face. And with that said, ladies and gentlemen, the prescription is pretty much uh, what we've sort of laid out in regard right to these facts and, and looking at what we've learned up to this point. You know, we we have a lot of information right now to be able to act on and we absolutely must. You know, we go back again to those tragedies in our history as a country. Uh, One thing that always comes up right in the aftermath is uh, people want to know who knew what, when they knew it and what they did to mitigate those tragedies, tragedies. And we've seen people (laughs) criticized our elected officials, um, other individuals that were criticized for not acting. And now we have a similar situation. I mean, Uh, If we talk about intelligence right before, let's say, 9-11 and a criticism that um, our president at the time, George W. Bush, received um, in reports that he did not act on that intelligence. Well, let's look at what we've learned so far about COVID-19. What we saw back in December and January happening in China um, and our slowness to to react, to do something. What we saw when it hit Europe and the Middle East. And again, we failed to act at those times. When we talk about what happened right here on this soil in New York, in the tri-state area and other parts of the country. When we talk about what's going on right now, we have the intelligence, we have the firsthand knowledge and we have things that we can do at this time to deal with this illness at the societal level collectively. And that is the case that I'll lay before you today, ladies and gentlemen, to make these choices on your own. Unfortunately, waiting for our leadership um, at the very top of this country to enact interventions and, and force us to do so to, take our fate into our own hands we really can't wait for that and at this time it really is on us to practice social distancing as much as we can um, to wear masks when we cannot uh, stay from within, within six feet of each other to really just do our best in practicing good hand hygiene and making sure that we don't spread this illness We have the power literally in our hands 
right? We have the power to wear masks. Um, those individuals out there, when we talk about our constitutional rights and the freedoms in this country, which I am proud of and certainly enjoy those freedoms. You know, one thing is that we do have the freedom and the choice to make bad decisions that might not be in our best interest. We have the freedom to make decisions that might adversely impact those around us, our neighbors, maybe even our loved ones within our household. We have those choices. And if you gave me the choice, right, to maybe suffer the discomfort of wearing a mask, to suffer the rash that might develop the hotness and the smell of my own stank breath. Now, my breath don't stink, for real, for real. Brush my teeth every day, but still, <laughs> occasionally, you know, just to suffer those inconveniences. Uh, if I were to choose that versus saving my loved ones and those around me and stopping the spread of this illness, I'm not doing it for myself. I'm doing it for other people. And at this time, with a crisis like this on our hands in this country, that's really where we need to put our energies and focus in order to get through this crisis. And for those of you, right, if, it, if the argument of doing it for your neighbor, doing it for society, for your country doesn't do the trick, well, if we want to talk about doing it for ourselves, then getting back to normal that only means, again, containing the spread of this illness. And if you want to cite politics as your reason for not embracing social distancing and wearing a mask, well, in the political arena, this is essentially the same message that is being indirectly sent down. I mean, uh, it was just a couple of days ago where Mike Pence finally said in public, that wearing a mask could prevent the spread of this disease. If we look at the states that decided to open up a little earlier than recommended based on the guidelines that were laid out by the CDC as far as reopening, they've had increased cases and the governors of those states too buckled down and recommended social distancing and when you cannot socially distance to wear a mask to prevent the spread of the disease. So essentially, if you look really closely and listen closely, essentially the same message is getting out there. And while they might not be explicitly saying to definitely wear a mask as much as you can when outdoors, while they might not be explicitly saying that we must absolutely socially distance, they are indirectly saying so and they while they won't mandate these strategies to mitigate the spread of this disease this is something that we can do individually we can all play a part in defeating the coronavirus and that's that's essentially it ladies and gentlemen you know these are the facts that are laid out before us and it's up to us to act on those facts so that we can have the best outcome for ourselves and for our country. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to thank you all for tuning in to Health in Harlem. And this show will be broadcast on WHCR 90.3 FM 
July 2nd at 7 p.m. So you can check it out there live on www.whcr.org. If you're in the New York City area, you can tune into 90.3 FM to check us out on there. And um, as we begin to close out, I want to thank my colleagues that chimed in just to tell us about their experiences dealing with this disease in New York City. I want to thank you all in advance for acting on what we talked about tonight and practicing social distancing, wearing a mask when you cannot do so. And really, I would just advocate wearing a mask anytime you're outdoors. You know, to my folks out here in Georgia, um, you know, there's still a good amount. I've seen more masks recently in the last few days, but, you know, there's definitely a good chunk of the population that is not wearing them. And so um, I just want to encourage you all, despite right all of the the bad sides of wearing masks, you know, this is what we have to do in order to make sure that we're all safe. And yes, it is your turn, Imani. So Imani, say thank you for listening to Health in Harlem. Thank you for listening to Health in Harlem. Ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. Harlem, take care of yourself. Thank you.